Hi, I'm Richard Niles, welcoming you to Radio Richard. Today I'm glad to bring you a special presentation of Radio Richard, a show I did for the BBC back in 2001 for a series called The Arrangers. When I hear complaints that young people are just completely unaware of some of the great music of the past, I say to those people complaining, well, why don't you play it to them? The reason I've always done radio is I want to say to people, hey, look at this cool music. Check it out. And you won't find anyone cooler than the composer, arranger featured here, Neil Hefty. So enjoy my theme music and then enjoy his. Radio Richard. Hi, I'm Richard Niles, your little darling, the kid from Chiswick, back with another cute edition of The Arrangers. Tonight, we're robbing a Batmobile to investigate the atomic career of the master of melody, the baron of Bach, the swami of swing, one of the most versatile composer-arrangers in the business, Mr. Neil Hefty. Everything Neil ever did is, is absolutely distinctive and uh, completely memorable. Hefty found rhythmic figures which he used in all of his compositions which just propel the beat forward. As a person, he was he's marvelous. He's just, hi, I'm Neil. How are you, bud? He was uh, proficient at working with a variety of groups instrumental ensembles, both big and large. He also recorded with backing up singers, backing up vocal groups, and uh, as he moved into the 60s, working in uh, a rock instrumentation format. I love the way he played trumpet. What, somewhat on the lines of Chet Baker, very reserved and very thoughtful and uh, melodic. He was not a Maynard Ferguson by any means, into, those, into that kind of a group, but uh, he was good, and, I, and very, I enjoyed it very much. Hefty won high school competitions as a trumpeter, but though he continued to play well into his professional career, it was as an arranger and composer that he is best known. Naturally talented from a very early age, Hefty also had the confidence needed to get ahead in the music business, taking a very bold move when he was just a schoolboy. Here's webmaster Brad Bigelow of SpaceAgePop.com. Back in those days, I'm sure any kid who was taking a trumpet in junior high school orchestra or band was watching the parade of swing bands going through the radio and, and going through their towns because in those days, uh, you didn't even have to be that big of a town to have a decent swing band or two come through every week or so. Neil Hefty, a young man uh, um, learning the trumpet there out in the uh, plains of Nebraska, must have been uh, bit by the same ambitious bug and uh, decided to pack it off and head up to uh, Woody Herman's, made contact with Woody Herman to try to get a job with Herman's band. At the time, he was probably in his mid-teens, and uh, however good or bad he might have been, I think Woody Herman recognized that the best place for Hefty was probably back at home and sent him packing uh, back to Nebraska. Mm -hmm. 
sent home by Herman, Hefty didn't hang around and found himself trumpet and arranging work with the Charlie Barnett Band, Muggsy Spanier, Earl Hines, and Charlie Spivak. Not a bad intro into show business. And after a few busy years, that high school dream to join his beloved Woody Herman finally came true. He joined Moody Herman when Herman was really one of the best bands on the circuit, and he became one of Herman's main arrangers to the tunes that he's best known for, his Wild Root and uh, The Good Earth, which took advantage of the sound that Herman was working on. Walk with baby, she's big feet, she's long, lean, lank, had nothing to eat, but she's my baby lover just the same. Crazy about that woman, cause Caledonia's her name. Once again, like Johnny Mandel's theory, um, the trumpet players write the most swinging stuff. Gene Lees is author of Arranging the Score. Needle was, again, a very significant figure in um, the evolution of the Woody Herman so-called first herd. It is widely said, and I asked Neil about this at one point, if you're familiar with Woody Herman's um, Caledonia, there's a unison trumpet passage on that that electrified people when it first came out, and the rumor always had it that it was a Dizzy Gillespie solo that had been written out for all the trumpets. And Neil says, no, that's not so. He says it was one of his own solos, which was actually on another tune. And Woody wanted it on there, so they put it in in a transposition. But Neil says, that's my solo, but it very much is in the style and under the inspiration of Dizzy Gillespie. So that section of Caledonia's um, a Neil Hefty solo, really, that all the trumpet players picked up and could play. The Woody Herman band at that period had a kind of a flamboyance and a crazy kind of sense of humor. Um, part of the reason was, I think, that the war was coming to an end and there was a kind of an elation in the air when, when that Herman band made those first heard records. And it's there and you can hear it in Neil's writing, you can hear it in everybody's writing. And Woody encouraged it. Caledonia, Caledonia, what makes it big head so hard? Stephanie Stein Kreese is a music journalist and author of Gil Evans, Out of the Cool. Hefty's working with Woody Herman and Barnett, he really came more out of the straight-ahead swing environment that then made him such the perfect writer for Basie in the 50s. It was a collaboration with Count Basie that was to make the biggest impact on Hefty's career. He contributed over 40 compositions and arrangements to the Basie book, every one of them rich, tight, and swinging. 
Basie refers to their first session together as the beginning of their marriage, and trumpet legend Miles Davis said, if it weren't for Neil Hefty, the Basie band wouldn't sound as good as it does. Just as Duke Ellington had Billy Strayhorn, Stan Kenton had Pete Rucolo, and Frank Sinatra had Nelson Riddle and Billy May, Count Basie found in Neil Hefty someone to share his vision. Hefty came up with a deceptively simple formula of catchy, clever tunes with rock-solid swing. That was an interesting partnership. In part, both men came after uh, experiences of failure. Basie, like most of the big band leaders, had hit the lean times, and he'd actually whittled his band down to a small combo for a couple of years and had decided to form it back up. Hefty had actually formed his own band and gone on the road with his wife, who was a singer known as uh, Francis Wayne, and had a disaster, a financial disaster uh, from that experience. So the two men get together in uh, the, the mid-50s and uh, produce some of the absolute best uh, recordings ever to come out of jazz in the big band format. Andrew Homsey is professor of music at Concordia University, Montreal. I believe that Neil Hefty, along with Frank Foster, was one of the architects of the new Basie band. And when he reformed his band, they call it the New Testament band, in deference to the early band, you know, with uh, Lester Young and Papa Joe Jones on, on drums. And the, the New Testament band incorporated elements of the new music, the, the bop music that was uh, coming in. And uh, Neil Hefty, along with Frank Foster, who played tenor sax in the Basie Band, kind of redefined the sound of the Basie Band. He had just this deep sense of swing that used instruments in a, I don't want to say simpler because it, it was still perfect in its way, but just a use of sectional writing, you know, the horns playing off each other, not quite as a complex bed of sound. You know, it, it was a much more jazz sound, partly because of the driving rhythm section that he worked with with Herman and then went on further with with Basie's reformed big band in the 50s. To me, his music just has so much wit. It was the perfect complement for Basie. One of his strong attributes was the way he would score the full ensemble in block harmony. He did it with such consistency that you can go back to Neil Hefty arrangements and extract from them a set of rules which then you can apply to new compositions. And many arrangers and composers did exactly that. 
what Basie did at that time into uh, the more modern era when people weren't dancing as much to the big bands, although I'm sure people still went to dance to Count Basie in the mid-50s. It was still like, it was a different use of the music. The sound had become smoother, more urbane, more polished, but it still had that every time he would create a background line that would go around Basie's signature piano, it was perfect. You know, it, it set off every instrumentalist in the band, and I think that was his gift. A sense of humor that, to me, is what is so much part of that big band jazz, just that exuberance and joy and makes you want to jump off your feet. And I think he did that with the Basie band when when the bands were no longer being so much dance bands. Uh, and I, I just think whenever I listen to his music, I just, it just makes me want to get up and dance. <laughs> One of the pieces that is best remembered from that period, it's become virtually a jazz classic, is Little Darlin'. And in that, Hefty wrote with such clarity and such directness that it really established a, a new way of, uh, of, of treating the, the big band. most famous one of all is Lil Darlin. I once took a look at the score on that and it's just written out in quarter notes and I asked Neil about it and he says it's um, Basie rehearsed it that way, he told the guys what he wanted. Often you'll find these jazz arrangers, people like that, they know their musicians know what they want. They will write it to make it as easy as possible to read rather than down to fine-tuned detail of, you know, dotted 16th notes and stuff. Neil almost revolutionized the Basie band. He wrote a whole album for Basie, and it's all just, once again, it's very humorous. It's got a wonderful bounce to it. What is interesting about Little Darlin' is, is the theme. It's a slow ballad kind of piece, and he turned it upside down and sped it up to create the composition known as Cute. Little Darlin' goes da 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 doo And Cute goes ba da ba 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 It's the same rhythm except in Cute, it's played faster, and, and of course, Cute features the drums, and, uh, and Little Darlin' is sort of almost the, uh, the archetype of the big band ballad coming after the, the, the bop era, you know.
It was while working as a producer at Reprise that Hefty was to have his Frank Sinatra experience on the record Sinatra and Swingin' Brass and on the Sinatra Basie album. For Hefty, though, Frank's approach to making music was not his cup of tea. I get no kick from champagne Mere alcohol, it doesn't move me at all So tell me why should it be true That I get a kick out of you Some like the bop type refrain I'm sure that if I heard even one riff Twould bore me terrifically too Yet I get a kick out of you Unlike Billy May, who uh, could orchestrate a tune or two before he'd even taken his hat off, I think, Neil Hefty was a more deliberate worker. Uh, he was actually a meticulous arranger and orchestrator, and uh, in fact, from uh, his days in the big band, there were numerous bands that came to him asking for orchestration sheets for some of his own compositions, like uh, Coral Reef, because they recognized how much hard work had been put into them. With some gal in the sky is my idea of nothing to do Yet I get a kick out of you kept too much of his own style and maybe that's why it didn't quite work with Frank Sinatra. I mean uh, Sinatra was more sympathetic to the arrangements of uh, certainly of, of Nelson Riddle and of Billy May. Maybe there's just something that didn't work and you know the rhythmic personality perhaps of what uh, Neil Hefty was writing. I get a kick every time I see you standing there before me I get a kick though it's clear to me you obviously do not adore me Frank Sinatra has always been known for one who wants to cruise into the studio knock out the recording and get on to the next gig that was a little bit more of a uh, on-demand pace than I think Hefty uh, cared for. So they did do a couple of albums together, but I don't think it was uh, Hefty's favorite experience. I get a kick of you. Hefty's ability to incorporate bop and other modern styles bode well for his future. Big bands were becoming commercially impossible, and radio captured the public by playing the new rock and roll. For many older musicians, both writers and players, it was a rough time. The recording studios offered other work, but as Neil Hefty recalls, it wasn't such a simple transition. 
As a matter of fact, there was a law here where anybody who went in the service could regain his old job that he left when he went into the service. So a lot of these guys came back in the bands, and a lot of these people came back into the bands only to find out that the music that had transpired during this three and four years that they were in the service, they were completely unfamiliar with. It was the beginning of the bebop era, which happened that none of these people in the service bands had any experience with because they weren't exposed to it. And so I think that a lot of them came back and had to actually start all over again as far as the style of music is concerned. Now, those who started all over again and remained in it did fine, but some gave up, and a lot of them left in sort of utter frustration. It just nipped the careers of a lot of them in the bud, which is a tragedy, I think. Bud Shank is a legend of cool jazz saxophone. We're in the same boat, no more jazz music. Let's challenge the film business. And they as writers and we as players. And the uh, 60s were pretty much dominated, the film scores, by guys like Neil Hefty and Quincy Jones and David Grusin and Michelle Legrand, all of whom had jazz roots. The traditional film composers were kind of shoved into the background. They showed that jazz music can be used as scoring on a film, they also proved that jazz musicians were capable of doing studio work. That was unheard of prior to the 50s, middle late end of the 50s. They wouldn't let any jazz musicians play. None of the staff orchestras in Los Angeles, all the major film studios, which at that time probably were five or six, had their own contract orchestras. And uh, they were based on a symphony orchestra, and there was not one jazz musician ever allowed into those orchestras. They think that, well, jazz musicians are big band guys. You can't read music. You don't know what you're doing. But uh, what Neil did and what, uh, again, Mancini and Quincy and whatever showed that uh, we as musicians are uh, capable of doing that, which was a, a, big, a big break for us, you know. careers spanned the years when jazz was a dance music, big band jazz music, swing music, went from dancers music to listeners music. So the role of arranging was quite different and that they also had to find ways to diversify their careers. In fact, when you really couldn't make a living playing or arranging for a dance band anymore and that they were skilled enough to go into TV music or go into film music, you know, just finding the right mood, finding the right shadings, finding, molding a sound that is very contemporary. Neil Hefty had nothing to worry about. He was an arranger with a solid reputation, and his talents were versatile. Television provided the ideal platform for him to exercise that versatility. 
Whether the plot called for wit and humor or great depth, he was well-equipped to handle it with his inimitable style. Of the many movie and TV themes he wrote, it was Girl Talk, The Odd Couple, and this little tune that brought him his biggest success. It's a great tune. It's a rockin', pounding, thumping tune. It's a signature tune. It's like the James Bond theme. You hear that tune, you know exactly who that has to deal with, and you think immediately of Batman. One of the trade papers over here, when that score was first heard, called it Word and Music by Neil Hefty. You know, you do what you do when you're a musician. The Batman theme was very, very simple and was done for a, re for a reason. Every dog has his day. I think the Batman theme was sort of like a nice pension for Neil Hefty. You know, the theme itself is something that uh, every jazz arranger and composer heard that and said, gee, I could have written that. Neil Hefty happened to be at the right place at the right time, and he had all the tools to solve the problem, you know, coming up with a theme for this television show, and uh, he succeeded marvelously. His consistency and his clarity came through and served him very well in this, in this case. It's a sound that Hefty really kind of specialized in it for a short time in the uh, 60s because you'll hear it on a number of his albums that don't have to do with uh, Batman. Several of his other soundtracks you'll hear that thumping band rockish beat going on. Uh, in the Batman uh, you've got a steady rhythm going throughout the entire tune, a very driving forceful rhythm that's moving it forward. At the same time you've got the melody repeating over and over the Batman name. It's a very playful sound, which uh, if you've ever seen the original Batman series, it was very cartoonish, had very much a tongue-in-cheek flavor to that, and Hefty certainly brought out both of those effects. It's an enormously successful composition if you look at what it was trying to achieve. Hefty found rhythmic figures, which he used in all of his compositions, which just propel the beat forward. You know, arrangers after that took that and sort of stereotyped them, and uh, particularly the arranger that came after Neil Hefty, well, quite a few years later, Sammy Nastico, it seemed as though Sammy Nastico learned an awful lot about arranging from Neil Hefty. Yeah, I'm sure every musician wishes they'd written that tune, as it's just a little 12-bar blues, one of the commonest forms in popular music. But of course, it's the way he tells them that makes it special and leads to bat royalties. Hefty left an indelible mark on the Count Basie band and helped make it one of the most important bands in the history of jazz. His clean style combined elements of bebop, swing, and in many ways pointed toward the smoother, slicker jazz we hear now on jazz radio. 
His film and TV scores added a polished jazz flavor to mainstream entertainment and paved the way for later writers like Dave Grusin and Bob James. He had the unique talent of writing things like Little Darling and The Odd Couple, tunes that you could hum that also had great musical depth, with an arranging style as shiny as a glittering gold garter and as smoothly explosive as a velvet volcano. Thanks to authors Gene Lees and Stephanie Stein Kreese, to alto sax legend Bud Shank, to Professor Andrew Homsey, and to web curator Brad Bigelow. And thanks to my pinup girl, producer Elizabeth Clark. Together we certainly are an odd couple. Until then, I'll be very similar to Richard Niles riding my little pony out of Gotham City for The Arrangers. Mm -hmm.